0: Welcome to Trending in Education. Mike Palmer here. Very excited to be joined again by Don DePerry. Don, welcome back to Trending in Education.
1: Thanks again for having me. I'm super yeah. excited about our guest today.
0: Yeah, well, as if that weren't enough, we also have Lillian <laughs> Nave with us. Lillian, uh, welcome to Trending in Education.
2: Thank you so much for inviting me. I'm excited to talk today.
0: Yeah, and I'm excited to talk to you as well. It's always fun to have a fellow podcaster on the podcast. Lillian is the host of the Think UDL podcast. She's also a senior lecturer at Appalachian State University. And we were having fun just kicking it about podcasting before we got started. But we normally begin by getting our guest's origin story, Lillian. So can you catch us up on what got you to this point in your professional life and and what you're doing these days?
2: Yes, sure. I am a recovering art historian. I got a graduate degree in art history and taught for about a year and a half and then started a family. So I went out of academia for about seven years mm. and uh, had three children. And so then started clawing my way back in part-time, which is what worked for me. I felt like my brain had turned to mush a bit. So I needed a little bit of that. children were in preschool. And so for a series of about seven years or so, I was an adjunct at a community college Mm -hmm. and then an adjunct and then part-time at Appalachian State, where I still am. So that was about 10 years ago or so, and then eventually got into a full-time position. And that full-time position was no longer in the art department, but I had been doing first year seminar. So when you're in that precarious position in academia, you just jump at every opportunity. Mm -hmm. I saw a chance to to make myself indispensable, right? By doing first year seminar courses that would then funnel students into the art department because there weren't very many art focused interdisciplinary FYS courses. And so I started doing that. And again, I'm like a puppy who's yeah. Okay. I'll do it. I'll jump on it. Whatever. you want me to do that? Sure. So just did a bunch of those things uh, and eventually got uh, a full-time position and switched over to first-year seminar. So that's what I've been doing for six years. Okay. Um, And about that same time, I was I don't know you might say recruited by Kate Brinko who was the head of our teaching and learning center mm-hmm. and saw a, a bit of my you know interest in trying new things and I had applied for a grant because we did have grants that were available for non-tenure track for part-time as well as tenure track people so that was a, a great boon and she believed in me more than I believed in myself. So I really have to give Kate Brinko credit for saying that I was creative because I did not think I was creative At all. As an art historian, I look at artists who I think are amazing. Mm -hmm. And I'm an analyst, really. I'm there to critique or criticize or deduce and tear apart. Mm -hmm. And so I never thought of myself as creative, but that was the real spark. And we started a faculty fellows program, which is very popular in higher ed when you don't have money to give people, but you could give them a course release and you let them work on some sort of teaching and learning or research project or something. And I started doing that. And that's how I got into faculty development. And that eventually got me into universal design for learning as well.
0: Yeah, that's some great stuff. And and then while while you're on this role, yeah, the folks, they may not have known they were going to be quizzed, but... We are going to ask, what is universal design for learning? So please pause the podcast right now, reflect back on previous episodes. We've talked about it a few times, but we'd also love to get a refresher. Assuming somebody might be fresh to the space, can you frame up for us what universal design for learning is?
2: I can try. It is a design principle, really. It's a way of thinking about teaching and learning and a way of designing where at the forefront of everything, is you are thinking of learner variability, that you recognize that anybody who's coming into your workforce, your program, your classroom is going to be diverse. And that diversity could be in Learning differences, including disabilities, but certainly not limited to those. Different cultural backgrounds, different languages, different life circumstances, working mothers, young children at home, second career, switching into a different career, that our learners are radically diverse, different ethnic backgrounds, cultural backgrounds, et cetera. Universal design for learning is a lens through which you begin. Like you have to start with that learner variability. And not only do you recognize it, but you value it Mm -hmm. and you put that at the center of your design. Mm -hmm. So that means you offer choices knowing I'm going to get more out of my students, my professionals, if I give them options to shine, Mm -hmm. it's not just here's my one way or the highway, We're only having this kind of assessment, or I'm only giving you this kind of thing to read or see Mm -hmm. or watch or do. Mm -hmm. I'm going to say, choose from these options or show me what you can produce. Knowing that you have strengths that you can leverage. In this learning environment where we're Mm -hmm. all co-equals, there's a facilitator role rather than that sage on the stage role Mm -hmm. when you are moving in universal design for learning. I'd say it's a design lens where the student is the center and the valuing Of diversity in those students and leveraging that for the betterment of all. So that includes multiple means of action and expression, multiple means of representation, Mm -hmm. and multiple uh, means of engagement, which are the three main pillars of universal design for learning that if you want a resource, go to CAST, the Center for Applied Specialized Technology, Mm -hmm. uh, and they list a large set of ways to think about universal design for learning. But it's not just accessibility. It's not just a checklist. It's not just things you have to do and then you're universally designed. Yeah, right. It's, a, it's also, I think, very invitational. Mm-hmm. We are asking for feedback. It becomes a group movement rather than a call and response mm-hmm. um, yeah. type of community.
0: Yeah. It's almost, so. almost like inclusion as a practice. In some ways, UDL was ahead of some of trends that I think we've seen some acceleration in, uh, particularly in light of uh, COVID, but then also Black Lives Matter and all the political upheaval and polarization we're seeing. There's increased need. at Dawn, I know it's something you're very passionate about and you work on designing a lot of uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion. We talked with Eric more a bit also about the importance of belonging, Mm -hmm. which I think is another component where when the design intent is there to give everyone equal footing at the table. Yeah. People feel much more connected and welcomed and it's very easy to forget that when you're rolling your eyes and saying, "I got to check this box to meet some sort of compliance requirement" rather than coming at it in a more holistic, learner-centered, empathetic way. Dawn, I'd love to hear a little bit more from you on this as we lead in.
1: Yeah, it's uh, interesting you bring up DEI and UDL. And when we talked to Eric, we talked about the feeling of belonging. We also talked about accessibility, but the idea that we want to let our students lead the way and be co-facilitators, co-creators, and co-teach in our classroom. And we want to recognize their differences in terms of ethnic-racial diversity, in terms of neurodiversity, in terms of So as Lillian mentions, their work-life balance, their age, their ableism, all of those things, right? We want to make sure that everyone feels like they have a seat at the table and they're actively being part of the curriculum as well. And we're we're engaging them and and giving them multiple ways for them to express themselves, for Mm -hmm. them to assess their work. And yeah, it's really great work. And I'm really passionate about just spreading this word in all facets. It's
2: been a big topic lately with diversity, equity, and inclusion. And one of the things... I've seen a lot in higher ed are some trainings and uh, especially out of Columbia, there's a great uh, training about diversity, equity, and inclusion. Our campus has, for lack of a better term, sleeper agents. So people who are dispersed throughout each department who can bring these ideas into the department. And we worked with the Columbia MOOC or Columbia series, and I got to interview Amanda Jungles, and we did that connection between DEI and UDL because mm-hmm. they are intimately linked, and you have to be thinking of that from the very beginning. Yes, retrofit.
1: absolutely. Like when you look at your syllabus, we were just t- talking about developing a course for DEI and and making sure that faculty are designing their course and at the forefront are thinking about this. Are they including resources from a diverse set of scholars, and are they not just all white men? I mean, Need to be intentional now at the forefront before that course is even created. And
0: then, and you're helping these people navigate this, Lillian. So I'd love to get a little bit around what has it felt like over the last year because it almost felt like you were ahead of an avalanche and maybe you didn't know it was coming. Right. And then, it, and it came through. Maybe you could surf the blizzard for a while, but it actually feels like. <laughs> We're all on the other side and starting to get our legs under us again. I don't know if my metaphor may have fallen, fallen down somewhere oh, along the way, just, just like the skier. But um, there any perspective on, on what it's been like this past year? Because it does feel like a field, like we're, I'm a trend spotting show and we're going deep on UDL multiple times for a reason, because it does feel like there's been an awakening around this stuff. And, and as someone who's been on it for a while and has been you know, advocating for it, evangelizing for it, what's been like this past year?
2: Well, I definitely feel very lucky that my entry into UDL was before this pandemic. And I certainly have benefited from that and have been able to see some things before my colleagues only because of my introduction to universal design for learning, which I coincidentally fell into after being the faculty fellow. And then our university worked with College Star, which is a grant that worked with several of our North Carolina schools in the system. And it was to bring universal design for for learning to the instructors or professors. And that was my role. Mm-hmm. And then we had another part to that grant, which was about tutoring centers and helping students in, in on the other side. So we went at two pronged, and that really um, helped me to start thinking broadly about our students and about design, which is something I had not done. So I'd been teaching, you know, since 1997 with then time off with children and then back yeah. in. And I certainly hadn't questioned my design. I just went with what I had been doing. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of imposter syndrome that you have to get over. You've got to be doing this for a while to think you'd belong in that classroom. And so it came at a time where I I had enough years on me as a parent of three very different children that has a big crossover into universal design for learning when Mm -hmm. you start to see how different people learn Mm -hmm. and you love them all the same. But they're very different. So I started to see attitudes change. Our university has been adding to their online courses and maybe I think we had something like called 14 for 2014. They were going to add 14 more online courses back in 2014. So that was early on. But there were also certain parts of universities that were like, no, we are an Mm in-person teacher centered place. Mm -hmm. And my particular division is first year seminar. And that's supposed to be for first years, a small 20 to 24 person seminar class. And you're supposed to get to know each other. It's interdisciplinary. You introduce them not only to the college, but to college level research. It's a huge ask, right? (laughs) And our university was against that being online. Like this needs yeah. to be in person. Yeah. And that has been very much, I think, what universities have been up against too, is this is the only way to do it. And because of my introduction to Universal Design for Learning, I thought, you know what? I have seen through people much smarter than me with much more real background in working with students online, that you can create community, that you can do and replicate so many of these things in a virtual world that you mm-hmm. could have in the classroom. Mm-hmm. That the university decided, hey, we need to have a way for students to get a fully online degree and there's this one course first year seminar that's not offered online and never mm-hmm. has been. Mm-hmm. So I I was like, okay, I'll do it. Again, I volunteered yeah. and that was before the pandemic. Mm-hmm. So I felt very lucky that yeah. that was happening i started taking qm quality matters courses which is about online excellence and teaching mm-hmm. and i started to get really heavy into that before boom no matter if you like it or not you're going online so that was like snowball right. and as i was doing that i had my eyes on or my twitter on a whole bunch of people like people you've talked to like flower darby mm-hmm. um and uh, brian Beattie, who does the whole High uh, Flex, mm-hmm. and Happened to be clued in, I feel like I was one page ahead because yeah. of this universal design for learning. Yeah. yeah. Um,
1: it's so ironic that was accepted as an online course already, but in, and hasn't in a lot of uh, places. Because if you think about, say, you have to do a library demonstration in a freshman seminar, here's your library, here's how to use your resources. But let's be real, college students, if they need something in the library, are going to do that online from their computer or their phone. They're not probably not going to walk into the actual physical library as often. You may have a small amount, but the majority are going to be doing it online. So why right. not do course and show them how to do this online you're using although, the databases there you're not getting a book anymore right. no
0: you're not <laughs> although although it is interesting to think about the flip side too where in a, a, a situation where maybe universal design isn't being used let's say there's no closed captioning for video lessons as an example yeah. and a hearing impaired student may need to go to the library where they have a separate version it's just to extend The thinking where if the design is not intentionally making room for these folks they're going to feel as though they have to go through friction to just feel the whole accommodation
2: model and universal Mm -hmm. design for learning is different separate from differentiation which would be more the word in Mm k-12 or accommodation which is maybe the more the accessibility word in higher ed Mm -hmm. it's that you design from the beginning so as not to have I need to go to the Office of Disability Services. I have to have three people sign this form. Then I have to give it to my five professors. And then I have right. to come up with a plan.
0: Mm-hmm. If
2: all of your professors are designing from the beginning, you don't have so much friction.
0: Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And even if right. you move it up a level to the administration or someone responsible for a workforce, workforce development, learn, learning and mm-hmm. development, it does translate to line items and budgets. And it's a place where I think the awareness of the quote unquote digital divide this year has awakened, like I said before, many of us, some of whom hold purse strings. So it does feel like there is an opportunity now to do good because of this raising of awareness, but it still feels like people are shook a little bit. And your point about imposter syndrome, I think is a great one too. Like it's hard to actually step into, I'm the expert talking about this. I'm the evangelist. I'm actually advocating for it. But it sounds like you've been doing that and the podcast is Think UDL. Yes. And, and then you were talking to us about some trends, which I wouldn't mind hopping ahead. Normally we do it at the end, but I feel like maybe we can get a little back and forth around some of the trends you're noticing.
2: Absolutely. Yeah. And and if your listeners are interested in UDL for other podcasts, mine is higher ed and workforce readiness focused. And there's another great podcast, uh, which is called UDL in 15 minutes. If you've got K-12 listeners and UDL research in 15 minutes, both of those are by Louis Lord Nelson, who's Fabulous. In fact, both of our podcasts came out within a month. Like apparently Mm. we had been deciding we were going to do this. And then they both erupted on the scene mm-hmm. uh, because strangely there wasn't a podcast on UDL. How weird yeah. is that? So there's, there's a lot of things to take to, to learn. It's an explosion out there about universal design for learning. Mm-hmm. So if you're interested, there's quite a lot that that's out there.
0: And uh, just real quick, you, you're on Twitter, I heard. So can you yes. just share your Twitter handle for folks who might be interested? So
2: I'm at personally Lillian Knave and the podcast is think UDL, either one. And that from that think UDL handle a lot about DEI and UDL and accessibility and those sorts of things. And the podcast comes out every other week. Also fortnightly.
0: Nice. That's one of my favorite uh, (laughs) expressions. As someone who's doing this on the regular, uh, you are starting to notice some trends. You outlined three trends, which sounded pretty interesting to me yes. when we started. Can you share those with us?
2: Absolutely. The first one I'm noticing is as we're taping this, is the end of the full year of the pandemic. And people are getting vaccinated, and a lot of universities, including my own, are saying, we're going full time back in person, just like it was in 2019. But not everything, I think, is going to be the same. In fact, nothing is going to be the same. I really don't think so. We have seen during the pandemic that the pandemic has laid bare the need for change. And that includes, I look through a universal design for learning lens. And so I'm seeing it in things like, first thing is conferences. So that's something that's huge and has been huge in academic settings for Promotion and tenure, if you're on the tenure track, but you need to be presenting at those. You need to network at those. If you are trying to get a job, you want to be going to those or using that too. And conferences for the last 12 months plus Have been online. Mm -hmm. They haven't been in person. That's radically different. Mm -hmm. And I'm thinking that as conferences start to go back, there's going to be at least a hybrid version that conference talks are going to be online, Mm -hmm. that they're going to be, you know, live tweeted, that they're going to be accessible, that they're going to be recorded. Mm
0: -hmm.
2: And you can access those recordings for the next 90 days or a year or something Mm -hmm. like that. That Mm -hmm. you can pay to go or you can pay to not go, right? You have access, it costs half the price if you aren't going to the place to be in the hotel wherever it is that one's
0: great great. and I want to pause briefly on that one to say the economics are crazy now too like just uh, supporting the spend for travel and hotels it almost feels like it's going to become more of a just VIP only are in-person or local. The other thing I heard recently was sponsoring parallel meetups all around the place. Uh, oh, wow. So that yeah. like when you're doing a big UDL conference, you could just have local happy hours that are right. happening at the same time. So it does feel like a lot of room for innovation around this. would love to go deep on that one, but maybe we could quickly hit the all three. Sure. The
2: second thing we'll have to talk about is flexibility in coursework. So if I'm thinking about higher ed itself and teaching, that pandemic has laid bare that we do not have the same type of students that we once thought we had. We haven't had those students in a long time, but this pandemic has made it very clear that we have adult students, students coming back and learning a new trade, a new, getting a different degree, students who work all the time, students who are taking care of younger siblings, especially Mm -hmm. when school is out. Yeah all of those uh, things means teaching and learning and how we design our coursework is not going to work the same than it did when we said, all right, I'll see you every Tuesday and Thursday at three o'clock. And if you're Mm. not here, you're a bad student.
0: Yeah. And that one to me speaks to the need for instructional design, design, thinking, UDL, all these topics that we're talking about, because what we built before was broken. People might have even known, but there was so much inertia, it was hard to make the change. Now this shock to the system gives us an opportunity to hopefully lead and design differently. And then hopefully with a little more resourcing for centers for learning and teaching for people who are passionate about helping teachers get better at their craft, which I know is something both you care deeply about. Uh, Can we hit the third trend and then we go free form, hop around, yeah. Totally, It's,
2: it's related to number two. And that is, I think there's a shift, not just in the classroom, but in the structure and the mission of the university um, for I thought maybe 10 years, like 2000 to 2010, maybe 2015. It was like the decade of the lazy river and the climbing wall Mm -hmm. where it was about the experience of being on campus and a lot of funding was going to that. A lot of customer experience for the students being the customers was at the forefront. Mm -hmm. And I think this pandemic has obliterated that, which was, we're not even letting students on campus. It has to be online. Colleges and universities have to be multimodal. So they have to employ a lot of people who know what to do with technology, how to get that out PR and talk to their, their students and train students on that. How can your university be everywhere at once and not just on campus that you'd spend so much money to make it a draw to come to campus? Universities are going to have to diversify and also really put money into and bring up those things like centers for teaching and learning to get mm-hmm. our teachers to be able to do that number two, which is flexibility and coursework. Yeah.
1: Yeah, I agree. And I also think of, I have a little bit of a marketing background. So I think of when you are doing a college tour and you step out of your car and you take a walk on campus, you're a college student at the traditional age, we may think, wow, look at this amazing fitness center. This looks like a country club. Wow. This has a great, whatever that's a grounds based campus. But now that we know, and we have learned that we need to shift some of our priority to, to teaching and online teaching and also face-to-face teaching where a lot of our instructors, they're subject matter experts, right? So they aren't necessarily taught to learn how to teach. So we need to allocate some funds for that and also build up those online programs, build up the pedagogy component in the teaching and learning. And then we need to look at marketing and now how do we communicate to the families and to the students and to all different students of all ages and types. How do we demonstrate that we have a robust, great institution that exists beyond those barriers of that campus? Um, That's going to be the challenge I see because that's not as flashy, but in the end, how you get learning to stick, how you get a job, it's not going to be the climbing wall that's going to get you the job.
0: And just to build on that, the economics (laughs) of the climbing wall, those colleges are in more trouble because that's a sunk sunk cost. And uh, (laughs) the flip side of that sunk cost is where do we benchmark the pricing of online learning which i think there's there's a real dissonance there particularly if you're thinking about uh, like a small private liberal arts college some parents who had the wherewithal were spending a premium there to help their kids go to that university when now as we've expanded our, our thinking about who might be entering higher ed you start realizing that's a much bigger universe and it's probably a much more price sensitive universe So that's where I I do wonder whether the new models are going to emerge maybe around certification or credentialing in uh, simpler ways. Also, community colleges are a topic that people talk about a lot. But I love your trends, Lillian. I'm just <laughs> free-forming here, but either of you want to pick up on any of this?
2: It makes me think of competency-based learning badging. Our university is going to be moving towards, if it's not come here and stay here four years, for your experience. And I'm using air quotes on a yeah. podcast, but for your you know, college experience. And it's just it's different. We're learning how very uh, different our students are how the world is different. And so our system has to change. Mm -hmm. Um, And Universal Design for Learning, I see at the very heart of it uh, is thinking about multiple modalities, making it a a barrier-free or at least taking down as many barriers as possible Mm -hmm. so all those students can be successful.
0: Yeah, and it seems like a real, from my experience as someone who's not deep into it, It feels like a real community of practice. People care about each other. They care about the fact that we're all in this together. It's inclusive in that context as well. So people are welcomed in and are encouraged to feel like they can talk about this stuff. I realize you would expect that, but there are places where that doesn't always happen. So I would say for folks who are maybe hearing about this a few times on this podcast, it's a space where we need more advocates and we're bringing folks on who can help guide you a little bit along the way. So I just wanted to make sure we made one more plug for that.
2: And I'm thinking about, Don, your PR experience in marketing. It it seems like a marketing problem because I have heard the student voice saying, what am I paying for Zoom University? I'm not getting my value my dollar value here and so i think we have to change a lot of messaging
1: and what is the benefit there and i see it as how can we shift the institution as a structure into a workforce funnel and how can we create or build that bridge and how we can use online and udl principles of course maybe there's some um, opportunity there
0: yeah. And it does sound like there was disruption from the outside in a way we've never seen before in online learning in general, higher ed, which the area you're focused most on workforce yeah. development, another place where people probably will never work in offices in the yeah. same way. Again. So the right. world is changing. We got pushed forward in some interesting ways. Time is flying. I always love to get folks' perspective on what might be a little further down the road as well. So we can start to synthesize and reinforce what we talked about in case folks uh, may have missed some things. But then I'll, I always love to, to hear some futuristic perspective from either or both of you around where things may go, where you'd like them to go, something new that's emerging, anything.
2: I'd like to continue on that idea, maybe even push it further about that flexibility and creativity that the pandemic has pushed us into this place, but how wonderful it is. Let's take a silver lining. Let's move that forward. One of the things, if I'm thinking in higher ed, who is going to come to an in-person faculty meeting? Oh my goodness. Especially if you've got, in our campus, we are in the mountains, and many of our faculty live in another 40, 50 minutes away. Hey, maybe we can keep things like we're going to have a Zoom or a video conference meeting, and it's no longer those barriers, and wow, we used to put such a premium on office hours, that old idea of your stuffy professor in a tweed jacket with elbow pads, smoking a pipe. And then the knock, I wanted to talk to you about my great ideas about this literature. That doesn't happen. Students don't come to our offices, but can we normalize having a Zoom face-to-face? Like that's just as good. Maybe that's even better. My students would much rather stay in their dorm room and click on a link and talk to me than finding where my office is hidden in the bowels of an old building with no exactly window. So I think this is a great time for creativity to think about what is workforce readiness too. How can we start training people to come on the job before they're even on our campus, right? I'm not talking about a university campus. I'm talking about our Google or or whatever place they're going to be landing. Mm -hmm. There can be a real creativity about those interactions beforehand, how you learn about culture of the the place you're going to, how Uh you can bring yourself and your culture in, Mm -hmm. how that invitation is happening. I think there's a lot that we can be creative with because of this push.
1: And Mm -hmm. to build on that, I love the idea of like crowdsource education and using guest lecturers from all over the world to have our students be more global minded and to have a look inside what is it like in the day in the life of somebody who works at some of their premier institutions that they have their eye on or the places that they wanna get employed at. Mm -hmm. And those people can so easily come on and be a part of your classroom. So that is an opportunity where before, you had to pay a guest lecturer to come on to your physical campus. That was out of the budget for a lot of schools. Now you may be able to get people to do that in a one-hour webinar or something. Yeah, it's a yeah. lot of that.
0: Yeah, absolutely. We're getting close to time, but the other uh, area that I love to talk about is new media and emerging technology. One area that is really interesting is virtual reality. And it's always interesting, though, when something is very cutting edge, it's not always built in a UDL way. So I'd be curious what your thinking is about some of the new capabilities. I know there's also corollaries around immersive audio. It's not like it's just for people who can see VR or mixed reality, but any perspective on that from uh, universal design for learning?
2: Yeah, in general, my answer is similar and that is what is your goal? So uh, knowing to clarify what the goal is, is gonna be helpful. And then what are your options to get to that goal? If somebody could watch a video, read something, or do the immersive reality mm-hmm. and get the same endpoint then that's great. But Mm -hmm. if there's something that's absolutely inherent in that immersive part, you have to find out what that is. Mm -hmm. And I know that can be difficult for some, right? So we don't want to force something on. We've had a few times at our university before the pandemic where I got to try that on. I swear I get dizzy. I can't do it. I thought it was really cool when I had an iPad and I went to an archeological site and I could Mm -hmm. see stuff as an ancient art historian. That was awesome. But some of it, I'm just like, oh my gosh, I feel like I'm in the swimming. Having those options. So some people are going to be awesome, super gamers. They're totally into it. And some are not. And Mm -hmm. what are your options for those students as well?
0: Yeah. Great stuff. Any concluding thoughts? This has been a, a wonderful conversation. The name of the podcast is Think UDL. Lillian Nave is a real resource, but thanks very much for joining us, Lillian. Thank you
2: for for having me. I've really um, enjoyed being able to talk about things because I don't end up pushing like this and, and thinking about what might be in the future. I think that is great. That's what you are doing, especially lately with these. Where are we going? I'm always seeing universal design for learning. So anytime your company and your university can give options for your students, your clients, mm-hmm. invest in that, because that means you value the diversity of the people you serve. So it, that's the the best advice I have learned from Universal Design for Learning. It's not only saying that it matters, but that I value you and mm-hmm. I value all the people who I'm going to serve.
0: Yeah. Yeah, the emotional component of learning design is another trend that has really been popping. And uh, this was popping too. This was a wonderful (laughs) conversation. Dawn, thanks again for making the connections. Thanks for joining. Thank you. And uh, Lillian, hopefully there'll be some repeat engagements for you. That's something we take pride in, uh, creating more trending and education alumni down the road. And folks should definitely check out the Think UDL podcast for more from Lillian. Thank you so
2: much. I really appreciate it.
0: And for our listeners, thanks for listening. We value you. Hopefully you feel included in the conversation. We'd love to get some of your feedback as well. We're at Trending in Ed on Twitter. Follow us wherever you get your podcasts. Share the word. Uh, Tell a friend. We'll be back again soon. This is Trending in Education.